You are Locked On Marlins, your daily podcast on the Miami Marlins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast, your go-to podcast for all things Miami Marlins. As always, I'm your host, Arm Layton. I'm a longtime Marlins writer, as well as the founder of JustBaseball.com. And in today's episode, we are going to recap the Marlins draft. It was a fantastic draft for the Miami Marlins, and I'm going to tell you why as we break down their selections. Not going to go through all 20 of them, but I'm going to go through most of the most notable selections, especially at the front end, where the Marlins had some very, very, very talented players fall into their lap. So I'm excited to talk about that. And it starts with Khalil Watson, right? I mean, Khalil Watson is absolutely the steal of all steals at 16. And I was out there in Denver for just baseball and we were doing a live stream as well with Locked On. And it was amazing seeing some of these crazy picks in the beginning. I was just losing my mind on the live stream because I couldn't believe how some of this draft was shaking out. But the way we continue to see Khalil Watson fall, because once he fell out at the top five or seven. Then we saw a lot of teams that just felt like they couldn't sign him. They either didn't have the flexibility or they wanted to go under slot initially in their plan. So they're not going to disrupt that by going over slot because that would totally shuffle everything. So it worked really well into the Marlins favor. For reference, so you know that it's not just hindsight 2020 and I'm just hyping up the Marlins first round pick. I had Khalil Watson at number three on my big board, number three. And I don't think that was far off from where a lot of others had him as well. I saw him anywhere from the three range to the six range, but I mean, that is a steal at 16. He's going to be an overslot guy, so the Marlins will have to figure that out, but I'm not too concerned about them signing him because of their subsequent picks. I think they allowed themselves to have some flexibility, and I'll talk about how they did that. But that flexibility didn't come from the subsequent two picks. It was more in the later picks because the Marlins picked up another first-round talent with their competitive balance A pick, and that's Joe Mack out of Williamsville East High School in New York. And I know some wanted the Marlins to select Matt Nelson, the catcher from FSU. And Matt Nelson has maybe a better offensive profile, but Joe Mack has a really nice swing from the left side. He is a great defender. By all accounts, his offensive profile is a lot better a lot better than Will Banfield's was. So don't think of it like, oh, I've heard this before, a great defensive catcher with some offensive potential. Joe Mack swings it from the left side, smooth swing, already can generate some pop, and I think there's room for above average power. I I like Joe Mack a lot, and I was really impressed with the receiving and the defense that we saw there. Matt Nelson, probably a better offensive profile, right? He hit a ton of jacks as a junior in the ACC. That's tough to beat. But when it comes to the defensive side of things, Joe Mack is far and away better. I would have been happy with either of them if I'm a Marlins fan, but Joe Mack has a higher ceiling at the catching position and just has a better chance to be a stud all-around catcher, I would say, than Nelson, but you never know. And I think that the team that takes Nelson is also more so betting on his bat than his glove. I don't think he's a liability back there, but there's definitely some questions about how he can do behind the dish and whether he can stay there. But let's talk a little Khalil Watson because this guy is electric and his swing from the left side is so, so pretty. I would say it's the best swing in the draft. I said that in my write-up and I stand by that because he has that explosive but also short, compact, and pretty left-handed swing. It reminds me a lot of Jazz Chisholm, really, because he's not the biggest dude in the world, but he generates this incredible leverage and just 
incredible bat speed in his swing that you don't see from most people or most players with his type of frame. You add to the fact that he's an explosive athlete, that he's a plus runner, that he has a good arm, and you're looking at him and you're saying, man, he, he actually does have a lot of jazz chisel in him. And that's a great thing for the Marlins, right? To have another athletic shortstop. What I, what I would say about Watson is I think there's going to be a lot less swing and miss than maybe jazz chisel. I think that Watson's swing is further along than Jazz's was at that point in his career at that age. And it's really just so quick and short that I don't really see swing and miss being a huge issue in his game. So that is the steal of all steals in this draft, at least one of because he was even getting some 1-1 consideration not too long ago for the draft. And I know he's 5'9", and that's something that some may be concerned about, but I think Jazz Chisholm, again, serves as a perfect example as to why we shouldn't worry too much about the size if they're a twitchy athlete with a good swing and just present strength. The fact that he's a plus runner also adds to that. There are some questions as to whether he could stick to short, but I've talked to a few different scouts who have said they don't have too much concern there. They think that that's a bit overdone and that he's athletic enough and that a player like him will be able to figure out shortstop. But even if he's not, he will be more than capable at second base. He could also play center field with his speed. And it's the bat that really plays. This is what you're getting here with Khalil Watson is a plus-plus potential bat, a beautiful swing that is way ahead of his years. And again, I really do think his swing is further along than a guy like Jazz Chisholm's was at his age. I highly encourage you to go check out the Fist Stripes breakdown of the Marlins draft and look at the slow-mo video that they have of Khalil Watson's swing, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. By the way, just jumped on the Fist Stripes podcast with Eli Sussman and had a blast. I think that just came out earlier today, so definitely go check that out when you're done with this one if you have some more time. But let's get to my guy, Joe Mack, because Joe Mack, I loved this selection of 31. We knew the Marlins needed a catcher, and they go and get one, another first-round talent, and to get Watson and Mack, I was interested to see what they were going to do here at 31, because remember, they needed to try to create a little bit of space because they're probably going to have to overslot Khalil Watson. Well, Joe Mack is not going to help them create space, but that's okay with me, because that means they're going to figure it out in another way, in another spot, and I'll get into how they did that in a little bit towards the back end of the podcast. But Joe Mack, I have just been so impressed with the more I've dug into what he has going on offensively. I've already known and heard all that he can do on the defensive side of things. He has great catch and throw skills, a plus arm, and has shown that behind the dish, a good blocker as well. But the swing... It's another sweet one from the left side. I would say it's not quite on that level of Khalil Watson, but a very pretty swing that's geared for power. I want to see how he's going to be able to hit consistently and want to see how that hit tool is going to translate. But looking at video, watching at bats against some of the high-end competition in the perfect game showcases in some of the summer circuit, he seemed to be very comfortable, whether it was left on left, whether it was high velo, good breaking balls. There are some moving parts to his swing, but he seems to time it all up pretty well. It's a little bit more of a quiet version of Alex. Thomas with his setup at the plate. Alec Thomas, the outfielder of the D-backs organization who has no problem timing it all up. He was just playing in the Futures game and has no problem hitting for average and getting on base consistently. So I'm not too worried about 
the unusual setup because he seems to repeat it and time it up well. And once he gets to his launching spot, it is explosive with that swing from the left side. I see plus raw power, plus arm behind the dish and the good receiving and the other tools that he has. The only thing that we have to see now is how the hit tool will translate. But what I will say before you freak out and say, oh my gosh, not another catcher that is good defensively with some offensive questions. He is much further along than Will Banfield was and is offensively. And I think that that's going to translate pretty quickly into professional baseball. Very interested to see how he rolls out and hits though, but I do believe in that swing. I do like the profile and there's a reason why the Marlins took him at 31. Already knowing that they were going to have some issues trying to create some space with that bonus pool money in the subsequent picks, but they were able to do that later. So I loved what they did there with the one-two punch. I mean, I don't think anybody in terms of sheer value got better picks with their one and two punch at the top. The only other team that I would say that is in that realm or might just have the Marlins edged out are the Pirates because that is a team one that had the number one overall pick. So of course, they're going to have an advantage into getting more talent than some other teams. But the fact that they were able to get Henry Davis for what I'm hearing could be as much as two to three million under slot, which is crazy. That allowed them to go get Anthony Solomito, another first round talent right around that range of Joe Mack. And then they also were able to draft Bubba Chandler. We'll see if they can sign him. But the two to three million in savings from Henry Davis, who in my opinion was also a top three talent in this draft is easily one of the best one-two selections here in this draft, but the Marlins right there as well. As the Marlins geared up for pick number three, I then felt like, okay, this is where they may punt to try to save some money. And nope, they didn't punt there either. They went and got Cody Morissette from Boston College, who I really like. Shortstop, can play all over the infield. And guess what? Another lefty bat. The Marlins go with three lefty bats here. But this is a high floor guy who has versatility, but still has some projectability as well. I got to see Morissette in the cape. And the big question with him is the power because he has a really good feel to hit, a good approach, a 400 career on base percentage in the ACC at Boston College can really pick it all over the infield. He's capable of playing shortstop. I see in the future, probably more so of a guy that plays all over, but can play shortstop when you need it. The Marlins need some more infield depth in the system. They need some more high floor college type guys that you don't have to worry about as much volatility. And I think Morissette is exactly that. But I think that there's also some more power in there as well. He should have 10 to 15 home run pop with a good field to hit above average speed and defensive versatility and above average defense as well. That's a good profile. I would say almost Jake Cronenworth with a little less power could be the profile that you're hoping for with Morissette, which is a great one. And I can confirm that there were some teams behind the Marlins at 52 that were ready to take Morissette. So it's not like the Marlins reached or anything like that. If they didn't take him, he was going off the board in the next few picks. So a good selection there by the Marlins with that second round pick. There's some more picks ahead that I really liked, including one that may be just about my favorite of the draft besides Khalil Watson, given the value and where they got him. I will get to that in a moment. Before I get to all that, a reminder that this episode is brought to you by Bet Bet BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season is in full swing, and you can track all the action at BetOnline to get all the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs, including MLB, NBA, NHL, and all of your UFC and MMA action. Before next pitch, head over to BetOnline on your laptop or mobile device and check out all of the sporting news and sign up for bonuses and contest information. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get in on the game as teams prep for their runs to the playoffs. Head to the website and if you use the promo code locked on, 
That's one word, locked on. You'll get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's promo code locked on for a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Also brought to you in part by Built Bar, which has all of the delicious flavors you can imagine, whether it's coconut, cherry, barcia, raspberry, mint brownie, double chocolate, salted caramel, strawberry, orange, cookies and cream, or German chocolate. They are all delicious, covered in chocolate, easy to chew, great for a keto diet, and they are low in sugar, low in carbs, low in fat, high in protein. What else could you want from a protein bar? Go to built.com and use the promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your next order. Did you know that Built Bar is the official protein bar of the U.S. track and field team? I can confirm that Built Bars don't make you run faster. I tried, but they do keep you in good shape and they are a great snack or substitute for a meal. So if you go to built.com and use the promo code LOCKED15, that's LOCKED15, you'll get 15% off your next order at built.com. So let's talk some more about this draft for the Marlins. That was so much fun to keep up with. And I'm going to preface this third pick with the fact that I don't have much on him. And I'm never going to sit here and just pretend I know more than I do. And I don't have a ton on Jordan McCants. What I do know is he is another left-handed hitter, which is just absurd. So the Marlins go again with a left-handed hitter. It seems like the Marlins love to just go with trends. Last year it was just straight pitchers. This time around, it was just straight left-handed hitters through the first several picks. But McCants, from what I've seen, the swing is projectable. He's a plus runner. Some have said plus plus almost, which is very good to have a good athlete out there, a good field to hit, and a good shot to stick at shortstop. So those are all good things from a high schooler. I don't think his price tag is going to be too high. We'll see. That's going to be the interesting thing here, but I don't think the Marlins take him there. If his price tag was going to be ridiculously high, they select him in a spot where he probably wasn't expecting to go that early. So it makes sense for the Marlins to reach a little bit for a guy that they like and then save some money there. And he's a high schooler. So you can reach for a high schooler. And this isn't a crazy reach. I'm from what I've heard from those that I've reached out to, they said probably more in the fourth to fifth round range. Instead, he goes 88th overall. So not really the craziest, craziest reach, but instead of punting on a college guy, you get an upside high school bat. I like that move if they're able to go slot or a little bit under slot there with that selection. He is a bit older on the high school scale, already 19 years old. So that is something that probably caused him to fall a little bit. Teams really do value whether you're 18 or 19 as you graduate high school. I think it's a bit ridiculous, but there is some data and history that shows that that matters a little bit more than you might think. I still think it might be a little bit more of a coincidence than anything. But anyways, Jordan McCants, projectable for sure great athlete and another infielder. They needed these guys. They needed some projectable infielders and some higher floor infielders. And I would say McCants for a high school shortstop is one of the higher floor options that you could have found here. The thing is, is there might be a little bit of Jose Devers in him where you never really find that power coming out. But obviously there's a lot of time for that to change. And I do like that selection by the Marlins there. But coming up here is my favorite pick in the draft by this Marlins team because I have no idea. Of course, I love Khalil Watson and that's got to be my favorite pick. But outside of the obvious, this was a total steal for the Marlins in the fourth round. It's Tanner Allen, first baseman, maybe a little bit of outfield from Mississippi State. And man, he can rake. Got to see him in Omaha, and I loved his approach. I loved his swing. I think that it's going to play. He's just going to be able to hit through the minor leagues, and he really worked on the footwork and defense to get himself out from being pigeonholed at first base. Played all of his games in the outfield this year, though. Teams still look at him as a likely first baseman. I think that he can easily anchor a corner. He played 67 games in 2019 at first base, 
but this year playing 67 games in right field, I think he'll be more than good enough at either spot because of the offensive profile. Let's talk about the numbers this year. 383, 456, 621 slash line. That's a 1,076 OPS, 11 home runs, 66 driven in, even swiped 11 bags. More importantly, only 35 strikeouts and 305 plate appearances in the SEC, 23 walks as well. Tanner Allen just flat out has a track record for hitting. He has hit through his collegiate career. He exploded this year, but also has swung it well through the summer, especially with the U.S. Collegiate National Team, where he was one of the best offensive players out there and really stood out at that point as well. So he has really been able to swing it. The big thing that has held him back from being a higher-end draft pick is that he's 5'11". He's not the most incredible athlete in the world, but I think he's an above- average athlete, which makes me encouraged that he can play a left field or a right field, also can play first if you ever need it. But the field to hit is really important for me. I have a 55 on his hit tool, probably a 50 on the power, and then a 50 to 55 on the run. So those are all good tools for a guy that you got in the fourth round and already has that track record of hitting. He's probably somebody that will be in high A pretty quickly. The Marlins may even just say, hey, screw it, we'll start you in high A. We've seen them have some comfort with doing that in the past, which could then force Griffin Conine up to double A, though he should be forcing himself up there right now. But that's an entirely different conversation. But I think that there's a chance we could see Tanner Allen quickly go from A ball to high A after just a little bit of time in the minor leagues. And oh, yeah, he is another left handed bat just continuing that trend. But I do like him as somebody with a good feel to hit sneaky pop and another left-handed bat. So the Marlins just stockpile in those types of guys. And it'll be interesting to see if that makes some of their left-handed hitting outfielders expendable, like a Cameron Meisner, like a Connor Scott, who have not been performing too well, but still have some value on the trade market. So let's talk about the Marlins' fifth round pick here in the draft. Another one that has more upside than I think most of the options would have been in the fifth round, but not as much of a track record and some volatility here is somebody that has had some swing and miss issues, but another Allen. This time it's Brady Allen, outfielder from the University of South Carolina, was a kid that was drafted out of high school by the Yankees, turned it down, went to South Carolina, was thrown right into the fold as a freshman, struggled a bit, still hit seven home runs in 56 games, really settled in in the Northwoods League, though the power disappeared a little bit. His bat-to-ball skills were good. He struck out 20 times, walked 20 times, then got ready for that sophomore season where he got off to a great start in 2020. Of course, that was cut short due to COVID, but was hitting 327 with three jacks through 16 games and a 459 on base, 11 walks against just six strikeouts. This past season, he showcased the power that he has. He hit 13 home runs in 57 games, but he also struck out 50 times in 272 plate appearances. Not egregiously bad, but for a college bat, you'd like to see that a bit better. He did walk 34 times and again, showcase that power, but that's really what the Marlins are betting on here is to see if he can continue to tap into that above average raw power that he has and continue to develop at the plate as there are a lot of teams that really like the makeup from him, his work ethic, and think that he will be able to get a lot more out of his above average or average tools across the board. And once you get into those fifth, sixth, seventh rounds, as it gets later, you're betting more so on the makeup and the work ethic. And it sounds like Brady Allen is really good in those regards as well. The next pick was another catcher. And I love that they went with a college catcher with the second selection for a backstop. And it was Sam Prater, catcher from University of Alabama, sixth round, 179th overall. Prater really broke out offensively this year and 
while he didn't quite match the numbers of Matt Nelson, did have that behind-the-dish offensive output where in the SEC, he hit 14 jacks, 48 driven in, didn't strike out much, 29 walks against 38 strikeouts. Would like to see the average a bit higher than 277, but it seems like he had a bit of bad luck with batted balls. Overall, though, 906 OPS. He's not going to be a guy that is glove first as much, but he is another college catcher that really broke out offensively in a tough conference. So to get that guy in the sixth round, a bit more of a high floor option when you talk about what he can do with the bat. The Marlins really needed a guy like this to balance out the draft a little bit. Of course, Joe Mack, I don't think is as risky as your classic high school catcher, but it is good to get another catcher there in the first 10 rounds. I like the selection. We'll see how he does. He's younger on the college side of things for a junior, still 22 years old. So a good pick there for the Marlins to get a younger guy that has the college experience and really broke out this year. We'll see if he can keep that momentum rolling into professional baseball, but a good selection there to get another catcher. As we get closer to the teen rounds, you start to see the Marlins go for some upside arms that maybe weren't as valued by other teams are valued as highly by other teams as the Marlins may have seen, which was perfect for them because they had to make up some money somehow. So to go get some projectable pitchers, knowing that you have your track record of being able to develop arms, that's exactly what they did. Save some money and try to develop these dudes. I mean, it works with Jake Eater, right? So they go out and they get Gabe Bierman, who had a really solid year overall. He has some projectability, made the move into the rotation going into 2020 for Indiana, where he made four good starts before the season was cut short. And then and this year was great in 12 starts for the Hoosiers, pitching to a 2-6 ADRA, punching out 80 in 74 innings with 30 walks. So this is a player that has all-around decent stuff, 6'2", 200 pounds, decent frame. And I think the Marlins can look at somebody like this and say, we can develop him. He's got good pitch ability. We can get him that change up to go to the next level. We can help him get a bit more on that fastball. These are the types of dudes that I'm watching and saying, I want to see how the Marlins develop this guy because he's shown that he can get out. He's shown that he knows how to utilize his pitches and can command them pretty well. So let's see what the Marlins can do to take him to the next level. To me, this is a guy that is just solid across the board, and it's a good test for the Marlins to try to continue to do what they've been doing and unlocking more. That's a guy that I'm going to be watching for sure to see how the Marlins go about that. The next pick, they go lefty. This time it's Pat Montverde from Texas Tech Southpaw, 239th overall. He's older, and I'm assuming that the Marlins are going to give him very little money, and this is going to be another one of those spots where they save a lot of money. He's 24 years old in September, pitched for three different colleges in his collegiate career, from Virginia Wesleyan to Seton Hill, not Seton Hall, Seton Hill, and then Texas Tech, and ended up being one of their weekend starters, where he was really good with the swing and miss stuff. 101 strikeouts and 86 and a third innings. He did give up 10 bombs in 86 innings, which is kind of nuts, but also kept the walks in check at just 21. So it's interesting. I mean, 11 strikeouts per nine almost, but also giving up a little bit of contact, eight hits per nine innings as well. So we'll see how the Marlins are able to utilize him. I could see him being a lefty reliever here. He's 24. The Marlins may want to fast track him a bit, and that could be an interesting spot, but they are definitely going to save money on this pick, and they are going to still get somebody that could make an impact at the big league level, which I think is the trend here as we continue. The next pick here was Jake Schrand from Wright State, a right-handed pitcher, and I didn't even know Wright State had pitchers. I thought they only had dudes that just rake, but Schrand was interesting. Interesting. 
he's not quite the same as some of the other players that were drafted ahead because he has some more electric stuff. Apparently, the fastball has hit upper 90s and he just has not been able to harness it very well. He's only six feet tall and he is just one of those guys that has that type of electric velocity that you don't expect out of a frame like his. Again, this is a bit different. Instead of having a good baseline prospect that you're trying to accentuate the stuff and take it to the next level, this is a guy with great stuff that you're just trying to get the baseline going and allow him to tap into some more pitchability. He has no problem getting swings and misses. Also runs into a lot of contact, so we'll see how the Marlins are able to develop him. Two good tests on both ends of the spectrum. Should be fun to watch how the Marlins do that with both those players there because they continue to go with arms through the rest of the draft. And again, it makes sense because you have been able to develop arms really well. So if you're trying to save money, still go heavy with the bats earlier and then bet on yourself to find those under the radar arms, which you've done a good job of and develop those under the radar arms, which you've done a good job of. And I loved this approach to the draft for the Marlins. Also, one more note I wanted to mention before I forget on Cody Morissette. He played in the Cape in Bourne. And Bourne was the biggest graveyard. So when you look at the power output and you're saying, oh, well, he didn't hit a single home run with Wood. Yeah, I agree that the power is fringy, but I saw him hit balls that would have been gone in a lot of different ballparks and a lot of minor league ballparks. But Bourne is an absolute graveyard. I can't tell you how many times when I was calling a home run out there where I'm like, is it gone? I don't even know. You had to guess. I think I accidentally called a home run that wasn't a home run. It was hard to see. The fence was small, but it was a million feet away. It was a graveyard. So I'm not going to really slight set for that one. I still believe he has 10 to 15 home run pop with that versatility. Just wanted to circle back and say that. So the 10th round pick, Hunter Perdue, another guy with a limited track record, but a guy that can hit the upper 90s as well. So let's see if the Marlins can help him harness it. I'm here for these kind of picks in the later rounds. I think that this is another pick where the Marlins save some money as a former Juco guy, older guy, probably not going to have too much leverage. Not a bad selection there as well. And the Marlins continue to do that with guys like Jesse Bergen from UCLA. He could be a guy that gets away, which wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because he probably wants to bet on himself. He was one of the better high school pitchers in the country, then struggled a little bit at UCLA and just has not quite been able to recapture that form. So if he wants to bet on himself, then he might go back. The Marlins will save some money in that regard. I think if they can sign him, then they're okay with that as well because he does have some solid command fastball in the low 90s and a case to be that Nick Neidert type, which again isn't bad in the 11th round, but I will be interested to see if the Marlins are able to sign him. Another standout pick that I liked though was the left-handed pitcher Chandler Joswiak out of Texas A&M. To me, no doubt going to be a reliever, but I liked what I saw from him out of the Cape. He has a unique delivery tough arm slot to pick up for lefties. I believe he could be a really, really tough at bat for left-handed batters from that arm slot with the breaking ball and the fastball that'll sneak up on you. He was good at AM. I liked what I saw in flashes in the Cape. There is some good stuff there that should allow him to be a lefty reliever that climbs through pretty quickly. Even if he's just a reliever, if you're getting a big leaguer with your 13th pick, that is a good outcome. The next pick is a huge upside guy too, in terms of literally he is huge, but also has a lot of projectability. Holt Jones, right-handed pitcher from the University of Kentucky. He's 6'7", and he has not really shown that he can command that well, 
but has shown flashes of what he is capable of being. He struck out 43 and 36 and two thirds in 2019, but also walked 24, struggling with his command. He transferred and ended up at Kentucky for the senior year, where he was also a bit inconsistent. You'd expect the fastball to have more life than 89 and 92, but that's just kind of where it's at for him. The curveball does have some good shape to it from a really high release point, but there's just not a lot there right now. He kind of looks a little bit like a poor man's Chris Volstad, which is really painful to say. But again, all the projection in the world and the Marlins, they are confident in their ability to develop those kind of guys. One other guy that I really thought stood out to me as a quick climber through the Myers potentially is Caleb Worcester, Southpaw from UConn, who really could climb through quickly, was a back-end type guy for UConn, a great team this year, picked up a lot of saves, tough on lefties, could be that projectable lefty reliever, but we've seen as what the Marlins did with Jake Eater, they took a lefty reliever in college and turned him into a starter, so maybe they're betting on being able to do that with one of these guys, even if they don't, both these guys have the stuff to be able to get left-handed hitters out. The pick in the 16th round of Ivan Melendez should be interesting, but I don't know if they're going to be able to sign him, even though he's older, he might be a dude that bets on himself, he's got a ton of power. I was really impressed with his approach in Omaha. I was impressed with how much he could just impact the baseball. I mean, there are some really big home runs that he hit in that tournament. Also, just going back through the season, he has a lot of projection physically. He's going to be a bat first guy, no doubt at 6'3", 220 something pounds. But the Marlins, if they're able to sign him, a very interesting first base type of prospect that could just rake his way up to the big leagues. Another guy that they got that is Intriguing enough as an infield prospect is Bennett Hostetler, who was from North Dakota State, older guy at 24 years old, but the Marlins are looking to try to find somebody that could be a middle infielder that they steal, but another guy that can pick it pretty well, should be able to have decent bat-to-ball skills, and you're just adding some depth with the middle infield and hoping that you found an under-the-radar guy that was just overlooked because of the fact that he played at North Dakota State. The last pick, too, that I thought was intriguing was Zach Zubia, first baseman from Texas as well. Huge power, probably some swing and miss, but again, you're getting a guy at 20 here. That is a lot of fun. He's got just major, major juice. I'd like to see how he's able to tap into it. You would have thought he'd hit for more power in college, but when I saw him take some batting practice, when I saw him connect in games, wow. He's got big power, and he has put it on display in games at times. We'll see how consistent the bat is, but I like that pick at 20. There's no doubt potential for a big league platoon guy or maybe even a big league first baseman there, and if there's a sliver of hope in that regard in the 20th round, I think you'll like that, and he's got big league pop, no doubt. The one thing I want to say as I wrap up is we're working on the top 100 list for JustBaseball.com. The Marlins will no doubt have a lot of guys in there, but what I will say is as we look at who from this draft is going to get into that top 100 list. Khalil Watson has a very good chance. I'm pretty sure he will be in our top 100 towards the back end, which is pretty crazy to get out of your 16th overall pick, right? And then Joe Mack is not that far off. If he hits well through the beginning of the season, he could be a guy that pushes his way into the conversation as well as just outside of the top 100 if he hits with the defensive profile that he has. But Watson probably going to make our top 100 because he was three on my big board. Anybody that's top 10 on the big board is going to make their way into the updated top 100 list, which which should be out on Monday, by the way. Really excited about that. But the Marlins now bolster their system even more with a ton of talent. And you got to think they trade away from some of that talent to be able to go get some controllable pieces that help you in the future. I talked about this with Eli Sussman on the Fish Stripes podcast. We talked about how it makes sense for Wilson Contreras. Go in. You just killed the draft. You got more talent than you thought you would. There's no way the Marlins thought they'd get this level of talent in this draft. Go 
get somebody, start building to win for next year and beyond. Let's hope they do that. We're going to start to see in two weeks here how the Marlins handle things. And you know, I will be all over it talking about the deadline and more. As always, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the Marlins draft. I did. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I look forward to talking Marlins baseball with you. My takeaways from the Futures game, seeing Eater and Meyer and a lot more in tomorrow's episode. 